Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Much Love Podcast. I'm Nate Rubin, and my guest today is a woman who's worn a lot of hats. Some of them have been in the marketing world, some have been with other nonprofits, some have been around politics, community. Um, but I think at the core of all of it is a desire to improve the world around her and, and use storytelling to enlift the audience. Um, so please give a warm welcome to Sharice. Sharice, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and welcome and uh, thank you to everybody else for uh, tuning in. Yeah, I think um, I've been excited to have you on the show for a while. Um, for those of you who've watched the show regularly, you know that I do a lot of intentional networking. And one of the groups that I'm in with Sharice is the Executive Council Network. Um, I think it's a really cool platform because you get leaders from across the world that are all looking to pour into each other and up-level their skills, um, retain mastery around the topics for today's leadership. Um, and Sharice and I just kind of connected really authentically in that group. Sharice, um, when we met, what was exciting for you about the group and, and what kind of drew us together from your perspective? Yeah, the thing that was the most exciting was... Um, you know, so often it's hard to find like-minded individuals who are in the entrepreneurial space, in the exec space, especially since the work that I do with Div Inc. is related to DEI. And um, so knowing that uh, the, the ECN group had already brought together people who are wanting to grow and tap into new skills and um and make new connections, I thought, okay, this would be a great place to find those like-minded individuals that we can bring together to partner because, I mean, the work that we do is so vast. We need help and we need support and we need lots of people's hands to be a part of it. And so um, I was just excited because I knew everyone there was there to get connected and um, and play a role and partner and all that. So we had already crossed that bridge and it was just a matter of finding the right people. And we kind of got connected. So there you go. It worked. Yeah, I love it. I think that the idea of what Wendy and Henry have put together and Anker about bringing like-minded professionals um, who obviously want to go out and build businesses and make money and make impact, but also care about the way in which they're doing it. And they're able to blend a desire for, I don't know whether they're classically liberal values or they're the, just this idea of progress for the sake of becoming better as a society. Um, a lot of people there believe that good business also leads to good societal growth and change, and they're not these mutually exclusive things, which tends to be kind of the temperature of today around like the, the DEI conversation or really just around intentionality of up-leveling who you bring into different entrepreneurial pursuits. Um, share a little bit about the work you do at Div Inc. for people who are unaware of it and, and kind of some of the results uh, that you've seen with, with the work so far. Absolutely. So um, we are a nonprofit organization based in Austin, but we have alumni all across the U.S. And uh, we help women and BIPOC-led startup companies build thriving startups. Uh, most of our companies come to us and they have their great idea. They've built it out. And now they're ready to scale it and make it a real company that can be invested in. And usually they're seeking venture capital support or looking for um 
um, any kind of partnership to help uh, test their product. They're looking for customers. They're just ready to grow. And so we step in to help them do that. And we've craft crafted a program that helps them do in three months, which usually if they did it by themselves would take two years, at best one year. And so we really are an accelerator for their growth. And then after they're done with the program, they're a part of the Diving family. And we have a portfolio program that uh, supports them over the, the lifetime of their company and the founder as well. Uh, we have this one thing within our group where we talk about there are multiple types of exits for our founders. You know, in the tech space, it's it's usually exit means being bought by um, by or uh, being um, bought or acquired by a larger company or something of that nature. You get that big infusion of cash and you run off and I don't know, live in Bali or something. <laughs> you know, that's usually how people envision it. But for our founders, sometimes it's it's acquisition. Sometimes it's um, a company purchases their intellectual property and it kind of becomes a part of an already existing uh, tech that uh, that is now amplified because of this new addition to this new element. Um, sometimes it's uh, the uh, companies, instead of acquiring the actual product, they acquire the talent. So they bring that founder on to be a part of their team to help build out their next phase. And so there's all these ways that these founders find a, a way to um, move to their next phase. But for us, the biggest thing that we're looking for is the ripple effect which is once one founder has this experience of seeing their, their products be successful in whatever way their exit is, they turn around and reinvest that, whether it's knowledge or financial investment into the community, into the next round. And so that one founder has a ripple effect that affects 10 founders, that affects 20 founders. And over the course, we're hoping to change the face of the tech ecosystem um, for, for good and create equity through entrepreneurship. So. That's what we do. Um, and so we have our accelerator and then we also have our events that are more um, workshops and panels and um, and uh, summits that help founders at every phase. So that's if you have a startup, if you're um, a small business owner, if you're just getting started or you're a longtime veteran, you can come to some of our one, at least one of our events and it'll speak to you. And so that's our way of supporting the entire founder base and then the accelerator specifically for this particular founder group. So that's what I do. Um, and I'm the marketing director. So I'm in charge of telling the stories of our founders in, in exciting and engaging ways. And so um yeah, so that's what what Div Inc does, and um, and as you can hear, we do a lot, <laughs> and so because we do so much, that's where those partners come in, and um, people like Wendy and the ECN Network and all the all of you all are uh, an integral part of making that successful. So that's us. That's a really excellent summary, and I think for somebody at home who's unaware of what accelerators do, you made it very clear. Companies come to Div Inc., they have the idea already, they have the vision, they need capital, they need some education, some guidance, maybe some introductions, and in three months they can accomplish what might have taken them one to two years on their own. Um, I think what's really important about that is a lot of people don't understand the time element of success in a business. You might mm -hmm. have a really good idea, but if you can't execute it fast enough, one, to sustain a living for yourself, and two, to keep pace with the changes in the market and continue to be relevant, um, you're at a major disadvantage. So even Div Inc. being able to accelerate that timetable, I think, is a, a massive value. 
Yeah, we we're very honest and open with our founders about the founder life because it's it's I mean, we we kind of it's 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 a joke, but it's also true that, you know, your whole family becomes a founder, <laughs> you know, and um, your wife or your your husband or your partner, they become a founder, too, because it does it requires a lot of sacrifice and a lot of 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 uh hard work and everyone plays a role, even if you're not actively a part of it. So um, we focus on whole founder wellness as part of our program. And uh, one of those things is walking out, what will this look like and helping to calibrate their expectations of the length of time that it may take or the amount of sacrifice and the amount of money. And, um, and to be completely transparent, sometimes founders say, that's not me. And they, we, we take them on a different road that feels more appropriate for them and more applicable to the life they're trying to lead. And so um, there are many pathways to success. And so we want to make sure that they understand the one they've chosen and what they really, what it will really look like. And if it's not for them, we help them guide them a different way that'll allow them to still see some type of success. So. Yeah, those are a couple of really good points. I think the first point that you made that was really strong was that entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. And yeah. if you can create an environment that lets people come in and figure that out with the support of others, they can make a, a change and go in the right direction. And you could maybe help them facilitate that process again in three months, as opposed to spending two or three years trying to figure out whether or not they have what it takes. Um, but then the other thing you said, even before that, it's really a team sport. A lot of times we glamorize and we put these entrepreneurs on pedestals of, oh, this is a self-made man or a self-made woman. Um, and there's really no such thing. Um, anybody who exists in the world needs support from somebody. I love that you talked about the family and the wellness component. Um, you yourself actually are somebody who is a, has a family, you raise children, and you have an incredible career. How do you balance it all? Oh, <laughs> so many people recently have been asking me this question because they, uh, they say, you make it look easy. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think for a while I did feel that what I guess everyone coins mommy guilt, where um, it's really not okay to say that um, being a mom and, and having successful successfully raise your kids is enough. That's for some reason not allowed to be able to say that, that there are other parts of you, almost like you have to be finished with mothering before you can be a woman or any other part of you. And um, for me, both feed into each other. There are so many lessons I've learned in entrepreneurship and lessons I've learned in mothering that I've cross-pollinated. Um, my kids have taught me patience in a way that I don't know if I'll ever have learned in, in any other way. And then I can now bring that over. And it's funny, some of those lessons about raising my kids, I apply to my team and how I um, support them. And so it, I say all that to say that though that two, those two parts of Sharice aren't mutually exclusive. And it wasn't until I understood that and really embodied that, that I was really able to find success. And now my kids are a part of some of the things that I do. My my uh, son is into art and much like me, and he's designed some things for me in relation to my company work. And my daughter cool, is like great what? with art. What's, what's something he's designed? 
Um, he actually, there's a logo that I had to design uh, for my new company that's coming up in a couple of months. And um, he helped me design the the logo for it. And, awesome. um, and, and the cool, there was a wonderful full circle moment because when my father was alive, he had a production company and I designed the logo for him. And so it was very like, Full circle, you know, moment for me. But um, my daughter's great with words. And so I'll ask her, you know, I'll ask her what she thinks about what what I wrote, you know. And so um, they don't feel excluded from that space. And then when I'm in the workspace, professional space, I do not shy away from talking about them and them and how important they are. And so to get me is to get both. And, um, but it took a while to get to that place where I didn't feel that way, or I didn't feel bad for needing both in order to feel whole. Um, that's a beautiful sentiment. Oh, you're sorry. Beautiful. No, it's all good. Yeah. Love the internet cutting in and out. Um, that's a beautiful (laughs) sentiment though, about being able to live holistically and integrate your family life into your work life and vice versa. Um, I found that at different times in my career, I've had roles where it felt like I was putting on an outfit, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was working for a financial services firm, I was wearing a sport coat or a suit often. And it's not that I don't think I look good in a suit. I I think I look great in a suit, Um, but it doesn't feel authentic. And it feels like I'm stepping into some sort of exterior role as opposed to integrating like what's my personality and, and how do I want to be in the world? And so I've worked really hard to, within Nate Ventures, create the space to just do it as me. And it sounds like you're just doing it as Sharice. And you, you're Sharice who's got a son and a daughter, and they're, they're helping you, and you're paying it forward, and you're creating that full circle like you had with your father. And you're bringing them with you into your conversations, and it personalizes you in the workplace. Um, I think that's extremely powerful. How are you able to convey those lessons to the founders within the Div Inc. ecosystem? And, and what, what's an example of a story or two of, of some transformation or maybe some insights that a founder has had through this process? Yeah, um, I think the, the, one of the big things that we've found is, and it, it makes total sense once you step back and look at it, but that beautiful art of delegation a lot of the founders come in really, they don't have that, they haven't, they haven't grasped, on, grasped onto that. And so their work-life balance is imbalanced because they have not allowed others to come in and truly help them. It's a kind of, let me give this to you, but let me check it every five seconds. <laughs> um, or let me be the person who manages the marketing and the uh, product development and the, you know, and I'm in all of those meetings. And And so when we start talking to them about that art of delegation, sometimes from that, we start seeing some limiting beliefs pop up that are impacting their executive selves. And sometimes those limiting beliefs are um, no one else will do it right. And um, so I have to be involved or maybe it's connected to fear of failure. And so they feel like they have to be involved in order to make sure that they don't fail. And um, and walking through those limiting beliefs that kind of bubble up in a way that is not judgmental in any way uh, makes them feel like they are wrong in feeling or broken, like some other founders 
know what to do and know how to fix, have, how to do this. And they're the only ones who don't. And we're like, no, 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 this is, this is universal. I promise you every single person has felt one of these things. And um, yeah. And then just walking them through the process of, okay, now do you see how this limiting belief that you need to let go can now turn into something that's impacting your ability to your company to grow. So you're limiting your personal ability and your company's ability. And so let's walk through that. And so when at the end of it, then they start realizing all the ways that they can show up now that they've let those things go. And and I, I mentioned a couple of limiting beliefs, but you asked for an example. And I would say one of them was, I do workshops related to the marketing, of course. And um, one of the things that I always run into um, are founders being concerned about showing up on social media and having a presence on social media. And the limiting belief I usually run into is um, I have to look humble in order to be taken seriously. So the idea Why of do the you think fun. That is? Yeah, I think it's it's this idea that because oh, when I delve into it, they're like, you know, well, there's just people putting craziness out there. And I think they're imagining, you know, those weird viral memes and TikTok dances and, you know, that kind of stuff. And they're like, they're just creating noise. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be seen as that kind of person. And I kind of ask them to step back and say, okay, what judgment of those people are you now turning into the way you think other people will judge you? Because usually how you judge another person reflects how, how you judge another person is a reflection of how you judge uh, how you expect other people to judge you. And yeah, so there's this term spot it, got it. Like if I see it, it's probably within me. And then you yeah. take it to the next level of um, I'm projecting this onto myself from others because I'm actually projecting this onto other people. And uh, exactly. I think that's like a really huge thing you've just identified because the whole world is doing it to some extent. And oftentimes they're just unaware. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so once we hit that, um, then it was, it was, it was kind of easy to see that what they saw as noise was turning it. That was like, and so I don't want to be noise and all that. And I, and I said, well, those individuals know their target. They know who they want to, they know their tribe. They know who they want to see show up on their account. So they're giving the people what they want. That's just not your people. You're not chasing after those people. And I said, your people are going to want this over here and these examples of, of um, accounts that look more like what you want. And those are going to be your people. They're not going to see you as noise because that's what you're giving them that adds value to their lives. On the other hand, somebody seeing TikTok dance every five seconds, that might add value to their life. I don't, you know, no judgment over here. But um, them really owning and understanding this idea that what another person is doing and how you judge that person for doing it can sometimes come back on you. And let's like, let, let's let that go so that you can be much more free and open and um, authentic, you know, without all these it's a really healthy mindset. Yeah. So that was one example of something that I see, I can't even tell you how many times when I talk to people about social media, that is the, their their biggest concern. Um, so yeah, that was one example. Well, in looking at my own interaction with social media, 
there's been pockets in my life where people have called me like Mr. Social Media in like our local networking circles because I've been the young guy who had a marketing agency and a lot of my peers at that time were 40s, 50s, 60s running businesses and they weren't very loud on social. So to them, I was like, you know, all about it. But what I've always struggled is I feel like there's what's inside me and what I think and what I feel and the conversation I have with myself while I'm eating breakfast. And I would love to be able to get that out to the world in a, in a natural way. But it all often feels like whenever I say something that's maybe deep or even potentially controversial, it just comes out sideways and then people nitpick at it. And I think it could be a very destabilizing thing for somebody who's very introspective and, and very caring. It sounds like you've done great work in this space with your own beliefs. How did you get to a space to really see social media for what it is and figure out how to use it effectively? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, well, it, it's also like this, it's this ongoing thing because they keep changing stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to say this today and then in a week it's going to be completely obsolete. But, you know, but um, to me, that goes, uh, well, okay. And I'm talking in a brand space, not necessarily in a, in a person space um, and like in an individual person space. When it comes to your brand, that I always rely on what's the data saying and what, what are your people saying? The, the, your true people, not the people, not the trolls, not the, you know, what are they saying? Because there will always be people who are going to argue. There are always going to be people who are going to say something against what you're saying, but are those your people? And do your people feel like it served them? Because of the, because of the hundred people in the room, Five are going to hate it, but that 95 are going to walk away thinking that was the most amazing experience I had. I'm so glad he did that and all that. So let's focus on those 95 because those five are because they're just always going to, they're always going to exist. And sometimes they're bots, you know, (laughs) you just never know. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. Uh, And then I do that a lot with people who have low follower counts because I think social has, um, really changed our thoughts on what a massive group of people is because um, like, for example, I worked with one company that had 2,500 followers and they were like, oh, it's abysmal. And I said, what if 2,500 people showed up at your doorstep right now saying, I want to hear what you have to say? Would that feel tiny? And they were like, absolutely not. That would feel like (laughs) I I, I wouldn't be able to handle it. And I'm like, so let's let's think 2,500 people that's an auditorium. That's, that's, that's a, that's not a stadium, but it's, it's a huge space and they want you to be on a pedestal on the stage talking to them and they signed up for it. They're actively wanting to hear from you. So think about it that way. And that kind of helps people. I mean, even 200 people would be a lot, you know, um, cause there's there, what they're, every time someone hits follow, they're saying, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you have to say, whatever it is that you're saying it gets me excited or it gets me um, inspired or whatever it is that you're trying to do. They're saying yes to it. And so let's count those individuals as like the individual souls that they are. And 2,500 is a lot of people. And uh, so that usually will help. Um, But yeah, so I don't even know where I was going with that, but that just felt like I wanted to say it. (laughs) No, you've said so many things that I think if I were an audience member listening right now, examine some of my limiting beliefs where am I lacking gratitude for the followers who have shown up? 
am I catering to the negativity or to the trolls or am I catering to my audience that cares? Like, I mean, that's, yeah. there's so much wisdom there. Um, in being a little introspective, I put out an interview at the end of last month and I did some clips and some shorts that were the most viewed of anything I've ever done. And it was also the most hate I got. Um, it was around the time when um, really we were seeing the the kind of final backlash of what was going on at higher un higher education universities, like uh, at Harvard specifically. Um, I had a guest on who thought Bill Ackman was a racist for how he was targeting Claudine Gay in a lot of his comments. And I just kind of asked the question, like, why do you think he's a racist? And mm -hmm. so many people showed up in the comments with such hatred and such negativity. What I learned was that there are these little tricks that we can use to get viewers and to get clicks and to get interaction. But are those tricks what we're trying to put out into the world? Um, and so it taught me a lot about like, how do I want to handle things that are timely and relevant that I know people will engage with, but also does it support a viewpoint I want to defend? Does it support a conversation I want to engage in? Um, because personally, I don't think Bill Ackman's a racist. But I also don't want to debate against people who are fervently defending him against my guest and being like rude to her. So like that's just like a subject I'll probably let go. Um, but I still want to be able to have deep conversations that sometimes might have extreme views either in support of or against. Um, have you ever run into situations like that or, or had to navigate a potentially sticky hot button issue online? Well, absolutely. Um, I work in DEI. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, many a times have had um, individuals who wouldn't be in our normal applicant pool come up and be very upset that, you know, you, you won't, you wouldn't serve me or you're excluding me. And, um, and then, of course, in this larger DEI landscape right now, um, how how certain companies who held it as a priority that those priorities are changing. I'm in Texas, and so um, we're seeing a lot of our um, our statewide government making some big changes that are affecting DEI in colleges and um, in really every level of school. And um, so, I think for well, one, I have to be you know, Sharice, the marketing person for Div Inc. And then Sharice, the mom, and I have my certain feelings as Sharice, the mom, and then other feelings as Sharice, the marketing person for Div Inc. But in relation to my, you know, my professional position, um, we still see the, the, the thing that we base our choices on are the pure numbers. And so I will usually respond that data numbers don't change, don't lie. They just are. And so when um, we when um, major studies come out talking about the level of VC um, investments that are going to women owned companies or BIPOC owned companies, and it's less than five percent of the billions of dollars being invested across um, on an annual basis, we say, that number hasn't changed yet. And that is our main metric for success. And so till that number changes, the work that we're doing still is relevant. And, and we just always bring it back to that number, you know, five less than, I mean, people who are considered, I mean, 
minority, we are not 5% of the population and we are not 5% of the number of founders that are in the tech ecosystem who are actively fundraising. We, we take up a lot more space than that. And so we are looking for that ratio of, uh, or that those percentages to represent the actual ratio in the industry. And so we always bring it back to that. What are the I, numbers? I think that's important. Yeah. No, sorry, I, um, I didn't so, mean to cut you off. But no, you so that's it back our to numbers is critical. Yeah, that's our approach. And that was the reason why um, Preston James, our CEO, founded Divink, because he saw those numbers and saw a need. And so that's what we always bring it back to. And um, our thesis of change, our theory of change, I'm sorry, is um, that through the work that we're doing through the accelerators, through this ripple effect, we'll be able to affect or impact those numbers and maybe see that percentage shift. And so um, that's our kind of our compass and our, our what we're figuring out. Everything that we do is based on that number. So that's how we kind of um, combat it. And um, but to, to relate it to what you were were talking about in those those conversations that are difficult, um, we when we're looking for um, individuals to be a part of our strategic planning and our goal setting, people who are on our board, we look for people who are coming from all different perspectives and. Um, conservative, liberal, moderate, all of those things, so that at least we know that all the interested, um, all the interested voices are in the room. And that to us is what's true- really critical. Yeah, that's what true mm-hmm. diversity looks like. It's not just diversity based on race and all that. It's also diversity of thought. And so um, you can have a black person who's a serious conservative, even though that may not be the, the automatic assumption that people have. Um, and so we're looking for people who are coming from different backgrounds, but also different schools of thought and bringing them all in the room. So at least you had a chance to represent your perspective in those conversations when it comes to divink work. So I think there's there's a bunch that you've said that stands out to me. I think the first thing being the numbers, the idea of what has been the opportunity for diverse founders to get VC funding. And we're seeing that if 95% of funding is going to white males, instead of attacking white males as somehow being the problem, there's organizations like Div Inc. that are like, we just see that there's a whole population that could benefit from receiving VC funding and guidance. And we want to cater to that population. And rather than try to tear something else down, we want to empower somebody else. And we want to show that a quality of opportunity can actually lead to really incredible outcomes. To me, mm-hmm. there's absolutely nothing exclusionary about that kind of focus. However, I did have a conversation with somebody who's involved in an accelerator that caters to a, a similar audience. And when they were explaining, like I, I had a founder I wanted to introduce them to, and they're like, oh, is, are they like a diverse founder? And they weren't. And for a moment, I felt this uncomfortability of like, there's a really good business you can invest in and be like, but you just don't want to invest in this founder. I felt this like this letdown. And then the next thing that followed that was how many founders feel that letdown every single day when they're walking into rooms, trying to get opportunity, opportunity doesn't come to them. Now, all of a sudden there is a a plethora of organizations who are just trying to provide them with that opportunity. Like the flip side is there's such this monumental opportunity for change. I think that the people who are critiquing DEI initiatives 
are usually focusing on the arguments of like the 5% most extreme of like the, the farthest left definitions of what DEI means. And quite frankly, I think it, it harms the industry when we don't frame the conversation correctly. Um, how is it that Div Inc., or even just if you want to speak for yourself as Sharice, is really framing the conversation when you're approaching people about like, hey, here are the numbers. This is what we're trying to create. What, what does that go like when you're talking to somebody who might be skeptical? Yeah. Um, so I would say, and I'm, I'm going to steal some words from our, our CEO, Preston, because he explains this so much so so eloquently, and I didn't even write it for him. He's just, you know, he he knows how to explain it. But um, it all goes back to the way um, Divink came about, um, and and that kind of in, informed the programming and the work that we do. So Preston, a longtime um, worker with uh, with Dell on the leadership team at Dell, and um, he retired and went into angel investing and realized as he was in these rooms listening to founders pitch that a lot of the women and um, BIPOC founders were coming in and they didn't have the information that they needed, the baseline things. Uh, their pitch deck wasn't exactly what it needed to be. And it was those small things that were impeding their progress. And so these were like basic standard pieces of, of what a, a VC would expect a startup to have. So that we, we hadn't even gotten into the, you know, I don't think at present has ever framed anyone like, you know, a black person walked in the pitch and the five white people on the stage were like, no, that is not how he how this came about for him. It was I can see one particular group or this particular group is ill prepared. And so what would it look like if they were as prepared as everyone else? And then it's a true even playing field. And then these VCs are making decisions based on everyone on the same level, with the same level of pre preparation, the same level of access to, to, to the connections, everyone on the same playing field. Now make your choice as to who you're going to invest in, because um, walking in ill-prepared, that, that will keep you from being able to do the things you'd like to do. So that's why Preston started with the curriculum and started with the, the making sure that these founders knew how to talk the talk, knew how to um, create their data room, um, which is usually like this uh, a, a doc or a file that has all the information that a VC would want to see that um, uh, uh, that talks about the company and the founder. Um, putting the right advisors on their team, who should they start with, you know, those things so that everyone is equal there. There's equity there. And so that's why he started with that. And again, like you said, that doesn't tear anyone down. That doesn't pull money from anyone else. Other people can still get invested in, but at least we know that that each founder that that VC is seeing that day are all prepared in the same way. And therefore it's an informed decision removed from any kind of other, you know, the founder didn't have a data room or the founder didn't have a pitch deck or whatever that may impede their ability to, to get investment. So that's how we're approaching it. And again, like you said, it, it is not a let's steal opportunities from others to give to this particular group. It's more like, what would it look like if everyone was on the same playing field? What would it look like if equity ruled the day and everyone was making those decisions? Um, so yeah. that's 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 how we do it. And that's how we. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I think. 
I think there's a language issue sometimes with the DEI conversation. Like when you say the word equity, there are 10 different things that a person can think of. And mm-hmm. I think the most extreme version of equity is the idea of equality of outcomes, that people in DEI are trying to create this uh, communist hellscape where everybody lives the same exact life. And no matter what you want to work towards, it doesn't matter because everyone needs to have the same outcome. And that's not what most people who are talking about with DEI, what the E actually means. Even when people talk about this idea of equity, equality of outcomes, I think they're actually talking about equality of next level opportunity. Because Mm -hmm. when somebody says, all right, 95% of people who are getting VC funding are white men, you might look at that as an outcome and be like, I want a different outcome. But to me, the funding isn't actually the outcome. That's the opportunity. That says, I'm going to give you a, a seat at the table to go play the game. It, we didn't say, you know, what percentage of what a kind of owned company actually succeeds. So you're actually just saying, I want to create the next level opportunity, which equality of opportunity is what this country is supposed to be all about, at least if you ask me. So when we frame the conversation from that perspective, I think it's easier for people who are hesitant and they go, oh, this equity thing, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in this whole equity thing. Um, but you also said a thing that was really important. It's that intangible piece of who is in your immediate network that you can look to to fill in some of those knowledge gaps. I grew up in a family-owned business, so the idea of becoming a small business owner was not like some impossible dream. It was the expectation. Like I, the idea of working for somebody else is actually like the impossible dream. Like, could I actually one day be a rock star employee in somebody else's C-suite? Like, probably not. I, I'm meant to run my own ship. So when you talk about there are all these people who are showing up unprepared, it wasn't because they lack the technical capability or the smarts to show up prepared. They literally just didn't have the people around to model the behavior. Now we create an opportunity to model behavior for people who haven't necessarily seen that modeled at the same numbers. I think what people are going to realize is a lot of these really silly arguments against diversity and, and equity and inclusion in the workforce are actually rooted in subtle forms of bias and racism. Like I had somebody comment on one of my posts the other day, like, oh, this is, on, mind you, a, a clip from the managing uh, director or managing partner, I'm sorry, at the higher level of Northwestern Mutual Chicago, Corey McQuaid. He runs all of Northwestern Mutual in Chicago and he won a diversity and inclusion award and I interviewed him on my show and he was explaining a whole bunch of things and somebody's like, oh, this is a pipe dream for technical things. And I just said, well, why do you believe that? And their answer was that like, you can't just be bringing people in to do things they're not qualified for. And like, you actually just kind of proved his point of why focusing on diversity and inclusion matters. If you're not creating the education and the internship programs and the accelerator programs that teach some of the technical things a person might be lacking, but already has the intelligence to do the rest, like you're actually part of the problem. If you implement these things, now you can become part of the solution. Um, so I know I didn't ask you a question there. I just kind of got on a soapbox and no, ran it for no, that a little was bit. Good. No, that that's what what we believe. It's removing the barriers to access for those who are experiencing them, and just that's it. That's all where we see a barrier to access, and we're like, all right, what do we need to do to remove that? And then once we remove it, we let them go, and then um, and let them fly, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's our, our focus. What's a barrier, you know? So, so, and those barriers can be, you know, some of the things that are, um, 
very specific to certain types of groups. Like, for example, um, we provide uh, a childcare stipend to those who are um, taking care of, of kids and our founders. That has nothing to do with race or anything like that. That has to, but it is a barrier to access for those who are parents. And so we we worked with our partners to be able to provide a stipend so that a nanny or um, or the, or a daycare could take care of the of their children while they're in the midst of the accelerator uh, program phone calls and and when they're traveling and when they're here in Houston or in Austin for the accelerator we bring in childcare professionals to help us with that if the if the child has to travel with them so again it's all about finding those barriers and i and and making them no longer something that that person needs to to deal with that would be um keeping them from whatever goal they're trying to to achieve sure uh, i think that when you start to break down what else qualifies as a challenge or a, an over a burden or an obstacle to overcome child care is a traditionally conservative value like caring about children and education and the next stage of of the family so like sometimes when uh, i hear somebody who is conservative like frustrated about a dei opportunity it's like well you're actually having an opportunity to impact families in a really great way like maybe you want to get on board with this um but another place my my head went with that when I ran my marketing agency, some of my best employees were um, new moms and they had young kids at home. They, they were working maybe flexible hours, but they worked really hard and they, they were very serious about their job. They, they had a, it meant a little bit more to them. So I think that there's probably going to be some study, if it doesn't already exist, of the impact of what um, female owned businesses, especially run by moms and their success rate. Because I think when you're a mom, things just get a little bit more real. Um, let me know. Am I, am I onto something? I mean, you are a mom. So let me know. And every moment is really real. <laughs> I have about 50 million tabs open in my mind right now. And um, because you're, you're, you're someone's almost like someone's executive assistant <laughs> and they are like 12. <laughs> You know, <laughs> but um, I think in, in, in no way do I want to say that this is exclusive to moms or to, to um, parents in general or caregivers. But for me, I'll, I'll speak from my personal experience. Um, becoming a parent helped me to get in this mindset of you just got to get it done. There was no like procrastination or any kind of. Um, uh there wasn't, there was no longer an option, like certain things, you just have to make it happen. And then when I picked that up and brought it over to my professional life, it was okay. Just like I can do over there. I'm, I'm just going to have to make this happen if I'm saying that this is a priority for me. And um, so that was a lesson that I had to learn after through becoming a parent. Cause I think before that I would just be like, Oh, I can wait. Or I'm not just feeling, I'm not whatever. But when you have a kid who has to eat, you just got to make stuff happen, you know? And so for, for me, that was one of the, the ways that being a parent has seriously helped me in my career and, and kept, kept my focus. And, um, and then I think my kids help me also on a, in a more creative space. Um, they have, they're, they come from a, almost like the world hasn't gotten to them yet. And, and although kind of 
uh, us who are maybe jaded or world worn, <laughs> we have all these reasons why and why not. And um, they don't live in that space yet, or at least my kids aren't old enough yet where they live in that space. And so this idea of why don't you just try it? Let's just try it. You know, yeah, maybe I'll fall down, maybe whatever. Um, let's just go for it, mommy. Let's do some cartwheels, you know. And I start saying that kind of stuff in my career, like, well, let me just try it. Let's just see if it breaks. Okay, the sun's still going to rise tomorrow morning. Let's just try it, you know. And so um, tapping into their level of, um, I don't even know how to put it exactly, how to describe it, but it is kind of like a no holds barred um, view on life. There are no, there's no boundaries. There's absolutely no boundaries. Let's just try it. And um, I adopt that. So yeah, I, I got that from becoming a mom. Yeah. Yeah. It feels almost like an infectious, healthy naivete where it's mm -hmm. like, they don't know everything that can go wrong. So why not go for it? And yeah. you need like a lot of that as a founder. I mean, for myself, when I started my first business, there's so much I didn't know. And I go back to something my debate coach in high school taught is like this, this four levels of consciousness versus competence. Like anytime you start something, you have unconscious, uncompetent, like incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. And you're so bad. You can't even figure out what's going on. You're just showing up trying to do it. And then you have this conscious incompetence where you've started to look around and you see other people who are good and you go like, oh, I really don't know what I'm doing because that person does know what they're doing. And then you get to the stage of conscious competence where you're like, I'm getting good, but like, I still have to think about it. It's like when you're golfing and you have to pay attention to the swing. Um, and then you get to the, hopefully this level of unconscious competence where you just show up as yourself and you're so good. You just are there. You don't even have to think about mm -hmm. it. Um, kids have this level of unconscious incompetence that I think is really healthy because it inspires us to do things. Like I picked up the trumpet last year as like, Hey, I'm just going to learn how to play the trumpet. And, um, and I'm kind of bad, but I've made the leap from awful to, um, I'm kind of bad, but like I play consistent enough to where I make some noises come out that sounded like what I was aiming for. <laughs> so I love that your kids are inspiring you to take a leap. One leap you've kind of alluded to, which it sounds like is uh, coming up here pretty soon, but you're starting your own business. Um, talk yeah. to me a little bit about what that is and what you're hoping to to bring out into the world. Yeah, so it's actually a little bit of a it's a, a bit of a two parter. So I have my own company that will be uh, debuting soon um, called Pixel Rose, and my kids helped me name it, and my son helped me with my logo, and um, that is going to be my my studio. I my favorite thing to do is produce content that's directly connected to um, a strategic plan or a movement, or um, it, it's 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 kind of a party with a purpose, essentially. You know, that's the kind of thing I love to do. Um, but I have always been doing that for other brands and speaking in other brand voice and and uh, bearing in mind other people's strategic goals. And now through this studio, I'm going to be doing things through my my brain you know, the things that I want to see brought out into the world. And it's going to be focused a lot on art and media and of course, storytelling, because that's really my heart. But um, it's, it's my space to say, let's just try it. That's, that's going to, that's what that's going to be. Um, and, but my, the larger piece I'm actually co-founding, it's a, a, a collaborative called a culture garden. 
And through that, we are bringing together multiple individuals um, who are creative and want to have a play space, essentially, to uh, support each other. But also, um, I started asking people, you know, if you had the perfect budget and it was all yours and you could just do whatever, what would you do? And some ideas started coming. And I was like, we should just do them. We should just pool our resources and actually do the things. Maybe it's a, um, a, an anthology book with, you know, thoughts and, and musings on marketing and storytelling. And it's 20 different people who do that work and it's all under one thing or an event or a festival. And, and we just, we started just brainstorming. We're like, we need a sandbox where we can all play together, bounce off of each other, support each other, but also put some of these really cool ideas out there in a way that we want to. And it's not just us thinking on behalf of the brands that we work for. So um, it's in, it's very much so infancy, but um, I am co-founding it um, with a dear friend and colleague, Carly Deerdorf, who's in Austin. And um, yeah, we're, we're making it happen. Yeah. <laughs> it brought so much joy and so much warmth to me. Um, sometimes I, I meet somebody and there's just this feeling of like, okay, this is one of my people. And I don't know why I just do. And I got that feeling with you. And it's funny because as you're describing those businesses, the first part of what you said fits to a T, uh, my best friend Inez. She was a creative director on my team for a long time. She's kind of branched off and done her own thing. And you know she's built brands for other people. Now she's focusing on herself and her own, getting her own stories out there and her own art and her own. So I'm like, oh, this is just like my best friend. And then when you talked about Culture Garden and this idea of a place for people, I've got this vision in the back of my head of creating like um, a healthy adult content house. Um, and what I mean by that is like, there's all these like very unhealthy content houses where they throw these young adults in and they turn cameras on and let them just do wild shit. What I want is a place where we could film like shows in the kitchen where people could be cooking and eating food and having deep conversations um, where we could have the garage in the basement be like art studios and we could have it set up to where we could take pictures and we can make prints and like run a creative collective out of like one massive house together um, that supports everyone's individual businesses. It's like you talking about that. I'm like, oh, we're on the same wavelength in so many yeah. ways. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah, the right now will be very, very much so virtual, but um, uh, having a brick and mortar space that that's like the ultimate, ultimate goal. And it's funny, I'm I'm saying that I want to like give a year, but I'm like, let me pull back on that because who knows what the universe has in store for me, but. Um, uh, I think the the goal would be there to be kind of a um, a real space, a literal space for people who work specifically in this field. Um, they, there's co-working spaces and all that. But when you are in, in marketing communications, even now, it's so multidisciplinary that no one place has all the things that we would need under one roof, you know? Um, and it's also so, about the energy too. So many co-working yeah, spaces... It's just like, yo, they found a vibey interior designer and bought a bunch of furniture and posters, but it doesn't necessarily have the energy of this is where creativity happens and like yeah. this isn't a, a place of creation. It's just somebody who took a long-term lease and broke it down into short-term leases. Like it's not, it's yeah. not magic. <laughs> and yeah. I'm noticing there's a lot of magic happening in Austin right now. 
And I don't think it's just because of the COVID exodus or like the Joe Rogan comedy effect or more tech deciding this is a good tech place to be. There just also seems to be this, this pocket of exciting explorers is like probably the best way I could put it. I follow a lot of people on Twitter who are building a lot in Austin. Um, you haven't always been there. How did you get to Austin and, and what are you, what are you enjoying about being there? So, um, so just to clarify, I go back and forth between Houston and Austin. So I'm a part of both communities, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, ugh. I feel like in the last first, the first year I was with Div Inc, I was doing a lot more of just like head down work because we were doing a rebrand and we were really like, there was a lot of work to do, but now that we're done with that, we're able to really kind of lift our heads and just see what the landscape looks like. And I've been exploring Austin and it has been so much fun. And I'm originally from New Orleans and everyone kept telling me, you're going to love Austin if you're from New Orleans. And they're kind of right. <laughs> and I think even when it comes to um, the live music and all that, people always mention that. But even when it comes to the history and the um, the the way that history is respected and and um celebrated i think i'm i'm seeing that now i just recently did one of the black austin tours um javier who is the founder of black austin tours he is a a longtime austin resident and lives lives in the freeman town area of the city and um family roots deep to like the founding of austin or, or you know really really like long term uh residents and he does uh, tours within the city in different areas, um, talking about the Black history that happens, that has happened in, in Austin. So I did a couple of those tours, did a couple of historical tours and all that, and just really got an understanding of the city. And then, of course, when you layer on that, the nature and the outdoors, the um, how in close proximity, the um, hill country and the uh, wine country and all that, it is, it is unbelievable how much you can experience in the Austin area. And then on top of that, there's, you know, work opportunities, especially in tech. Obviously everyone knows about that part, but um, it, and it's perfectly poised to be where Div Inc is, is, has kind of set our roots because um, the tech space, but also um, the fact that, there's so many elements and so many opportunities and so much available there for founders who are trying to get started. It ends up being either they move to Austin or Houston. And uh, one thing that Houston does have over Austin is uh, the price, the cost of living is a lot lower in Houston. <laughs> and so some founders may see that as what they're most excited about and they can kind of uh, plant roots here. But, um, but yeah, Austin is, is, is amazing. And I think also, you know, for building a company in general, Texas is great. We don't have an income tax. There's, you know, business taxes are um, kept low on on purpose to bring in um, headquarters and new companies. So it's just a great place to be and the perfect place for us and, uh, and Div Inc. too. So. I'd love to meet Javier. I think he'd be a great guest on the show. Um, but also, really? quite frankly, like at a personal level, I want to meet him. Um, I've been to Austin twice. And I've enjoyed both times. Um, I've wanted to move out of Illinois for a long, long time. I love Chicago as a hub. Um, and I could see myself always living here and just going to other places. 
But if I did find like the absolute right place, right time, and I've always had this feeling like Austin could be one of those places. Um, but to just keep it like a thousand with you, my wife is black and she's like, I don't know if I fuck with Texas. And to hear you say like, Hey, there's this guy Javier who like maybe, you know, has the the history on, you know, the black experience in Austin. Um, I've always heard that Houston is like more of a, a black friendly city in Texas. Um, so like you having intimate experiences with both Houston and Austin, like I'd love just some like inside baseball. Like, what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. So um, most people come here and they're choosing between Houston, Austin, San Antonio and Dallas. And um, and if you live in one, you can be in the other within four hours, the max, you know, so it's very easy. And they keep promising a, a high speed train, but I've been hurt in the past and I just don't believe them anymore. So um, at some point we might get a high speed train between the two. And then really all of them are in each other's backyards. But, um, but yeah, Houston, um, for the size of city that we are, um, we're the most diverse major metropolitan area. I think the Houston's the fourth largest metro and um, the most diverse in Texas. And um, so that is very much so a difference than Austin. Um, there is a black population. There's a, a minority population in general, but um, in the central areas of Austin, much like some other cities, there's been a lot of gentrification. And that has pushed out a lot of the residents. And so Austin really has um, talked openly about their diversity problems. I hate to use the word problems, but um, um, they've talked very openly about them. Um, Preston, our CEO, has been involved in working with uh, city officials regarding that particular um, He And he spoke at uh, that particular issue and he's spoken out about it as well. And um Austin, the the because there's so many headquarters there, it's really poised to be a place where a lot of people can go and succeed. But there's just work to be done. But uh, but yeah, Houston is very much so um, a black town, <laughs> and of course we have a Hispanic population, Hispanic Latinx um, population. And so, if you're looking for diversity, definitely Houston. Um, but even if you were in Austin, Houston's only a stone's throw away. I do day trips to Austin all the time, so you can pick one or the other. Um, but I will say everyone that I know, the black people I know in Austin live in Fluglerville, which is north okay. of the main metro area. And so if you want to Google that and see what's up there, but the majority of them live in the Fluglerville area that that's what I've been told. And so that's kind of where Black Austin is. And then, um, yeah, and then the other surrounding areas. But from what I've heard about housing prices, a lot of people are moving out of the central area. It's just kind of cost prohibitive. So most people live in the suburbs anyway. So, um, but yeah, if you want to just uh, send me a message, if you want to meet it, want to talk more about it. I know a couple of people who just recently moved here from Austin. So I can tell you a little bit more about their experience, but um but yeah, uh, I'm not. Sh uh, <laughs> I want to say you would have a, um, a break from the snow, but recently we've been having Arctic temperatures. Today it's sixty something, but like the day before yesterday it was in the twenties. So you may have to deal with some cold. Not Chicago cold, but y'all are trying to get away from the when y'all were having like nineteen. I had a client who was like, "Yeah, it's nineteen degrees here. There's only four of us at the WeWork." I'm like, 19 sounds tropical. It's negative 15 and feels like negative 30. 
like my nose, my nose hairs froze on the walk from my front door to my car. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is a bit of a respite then. Um, yeah, you will exactly. Not- I'm, <laughs> I'm cool with that. Um, okay. I think at minimum, it sounds like there's a, a trip that needs to be scheduled here or my wife and I could check out Austin and Houston. Um, there's, there seems to be good energy of, um, people who are just doing things out publicly and openly. And like, there's a, another podcaster I follow, his name is Danny Miranda. And he started a run club, um, on like uh, Tuesday mornings. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And I keep seeing people getting involved and I'm like, Oh, these are other people I know in the Austin area. Like it would kind of be nice to be around a kind of vibe like that. So I, I at least want to check it out. Yeah. Um, well, and I ended up settling in Houston when I had my choice of which way is going to be my actual home base. Um, ended up settling in Houston um, because the, the I was looking for a good diversity for my kids and their school. And so I really wanted them to grow up around all different types of people because I feel like that ability to navigate all different types of spaces is so important for us now. I can't imagine it would, it would be mandatory once they're older and trying to get into the workforce and even college and all that. So that um, diversity of their schooling was of high importance to me. And so that's why I chose Houston, but I go back and forth to Austin all the time. And as I said, my co-founder is in Austin. So any chance I get, I'm, I'm over there hiking or. That's beautiful. And you know. mentioned being from New Orleans originally, which I, I don't think I have time to go into all my New Orleans stories. I've just, I've really <laughs> enjoyed that city. Um, but one of the things from your bio is that you worked at the Louisiana Public Health Institute um, and you were working to combat homelessness in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was that experience like? And are there things that you learned about the homelessness epidemic that might be insights to people who've never really worked in that space? Yeah. So the the program that I helped launch with with LPHI was a new approach to homelessness. And it was really with the thought process of mental health should be a part of the homelessness solution. It can't just be, you know, um, the, the, the simple things that we have been doing, just um, shelters and um, soup kitchens and the things that you would stereotypically think of when it comes to homeless services. Um, instead, it was incorporating um, counseling, incorporating um, uh when appropriate, uh, job training, and then also um, individual housing that uh, the person would have access to, and then also and also medical care. So it was this idea of um, almost like a, a beta testing of this new approach that is this this whole founder. And I'm realizing, yeah, I was whole founder then too. I'm starting to see a thread in the work that I've done. <laughs> but um, you know, seeing people as beyond just the thing that they're running into, the issue they're they're experiencing that moment. And so um we had uh, a handful of clients that we worked with that uh, volunteered to be a part of the program. And um, we had multiple um, professionals that represented all those different areas who worked with them on a daily or weekly basis, depending on their needs. And um, we we just it was a three year project and we were just hopefully seeing that as the start of something more. Unfortunately, Hurricane Katrina happened and that kind of derailed everything. And so we never were really able to see the full project come to fruition. And, um, and I evacuated to Houston and decided to stay here. So um, I was never wow. able to see the end of that, but we, 
we were able to do it for a year and saw some huge, um, some huge successes for um, of the 20, I think, individuals that were slated to be in it. We had actively started working with five and um, had already seen successes with uh, a handful of them, one of which was a veteran who, for one reason or another, had never been able to claim his veteran benefits. And so when we realized that, being able to just connect in with his veteran benefits turned into his ability to begin financially supporting himself. And then, of course, he had mental um, he had dealt with a lot of mental illness because of experiences on the streets and so supporting him with that. So that was one particular um, example that was an almost immediate return on this new approach because we really delved into his history and then found out what he needed to to really get back on his feet. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a sad thing that we weren't able to finish out the three years and then see it grow from there. But um, we definitely made some impact while we were doing it. Well, there's a a common thread to all the work you've done, and it seems like um, I'm just holistically, <laughs> yeah, holistically seeing people as a, an entire human being, um, bringing a spirit of entrepreneurship, and even being an entrepreneur within another organization. It just I feel like you have a really good sense of what matters to people and you can get the full picture. So that's, that's a gift. I feel like a lot of people are missing that. Um, there tends to be kind of this, this argument oftentimes of like the society or the collective versus the individual. And there's like a lot of people that think it's like one or the other, but what I've come to realize it's, it's very much an and we can have problems like homelessness uh, we could have problems like a lack of opportunity. We could have pro all kinds of issues that somebody could choose to combat. And you can see the data that gives you the collective or societal impact. But the only way to fix it is to one op individual at a time, assess what's going on and create the opportunity to, to work with that one person. Um, as you're shaking your head, it seems like it's extremely obvious to you. Is this something that you've just known inherently or was somewhere along your journey, this uh, uh, concept you picked up? I have no idea. And really, I'm literally like, I wish there was a little light bulb above my head because I am just realizing this about myself. <laughs> but um, I, I think I think when you experience moments where you maybe I don't know. I, I kind of feel like purpose is pulled out of your own pain. And so there are a lot of moments in my life where I felt like I wasn't being seen as a whole person or pieces of me were being valued where other pieces were either ignored or devalued. And so it it's like I was trying to give from an empty cup because all that I am wasn't being seen and appreciated. And so I guess, you know, maybe purpose is built out of you experiencing something and then never wanting anyone else to feel that way. And um, you're absolutely right. Things. And I'm like, now I have to go talk to my therapist. <laughs> yeah. I love it. If I could have helped with that little bit of insight. Um, you know, it, it, it's really funny. There's um, that pain. The pain, I think, is what motivates anyone to go from this state to that state. Um, for myself, I've always been always been touched by homelessness as an issue because it, it seems so fixable. And at the same time, um, I have my own history of, of drug abuse and alcohol abuse that it took me getting sober to understand just how quickly 
somebody's own issues can lead to them being in that homelessness situation, but not necessarily only being just that, and there being a deeper illness that requires treatment. So like Mm -hmm. my parents, I dropped out of college, I came back home and it was like, hey, if you can't get with the program, like you're going to have to get out of here. And I know a lot of people who've made the decision to be like, all right, well, I'm going to get out of here and I'll go figure it out. Um, For whatever reason, I had enough consequences all at the right time. My heart opened up to God and like a lot of change happened very quickly. Um, But I guess my point was that I got an intimate look at just how one small decision could totally alter the trajectory Mm -hmm. of where I was headed. Mm -hmm. And so I think whether it was God's way of making me a certain way out of the box to be able to relate to somebody at a certain position. Like I remember being young volunteering at soup kitchens and just being very affected. Like it just, it meant something to me. I could see it. I could feel it. Um, And now on the other side of it, one of the greatest purposes that's come from me is to now help other people with substance abuse issues and to, to pay that forward. Um, So I guess you're a hundred percent right. And I just, I'm, I'm so grateful that we're connecting at this level of, of, of the pain and overcoming the pain and, and trying to make sure nobody else goes through that. Um, is there something that's really core to you or, or even deeper personal? That's something you've transcended. That's super important to you now, or, or even if you haven't dealt with it personally, what's been just a, a really, really important way you try to be in the world. Okay. I, well, this is something I've already, a realization I've already had because I have this, and this is going to be no surprise to you. I have this strange preoccupation with seeing justice and seeing people um, and doing something about it, whatever it is I'm seeing, doing something about injustice. And um, I credit that to a conversation I had with my mom when I was in elementary school. She picked me up from school and I was telling her about my day, the normal and everything. And I told her that one of my friends was being bullied during um, recess And I just recounted the whole thing to her. And as she's driving, she said, okay, well, Sharice, but what did you do? And I was like, well, I didn't do anything. I wasn't bullying or I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, hurting her or whatever. And she said, yes, but what did you do? Did you just sit back and watch? Did you do something for her? Or did you just sit back and watch your friend being bullied like that and and just was a a witness. And that story has stuck with me even to now. I mean, I'm in my forties and that was when I was like 10. And I'm I still I still feel it in my heart, that moment, that question she asked me. And it and it I think that is like my rudder is but if I'm seeing something, okay, then do something. And if I can't do something, call the person that can do something. Or if I need to ask the question that will uh, pull back the curtain, or will I be the one that'll take the hit because someone else doesn't feel comfortable doing that, so I'll do it for you. Um, Because I never want to have that feeling again of, yeah, I could have done something and I didn't. And instead, I was just the willing witness of someone else being hurt. So that's my mom. She did that. I appreciate it for it because I think that's where my career came from. <laughs> what a beautiful gift she gave you. Um, yeah. It's such, that such a powerful story. Um, yeah. I feel like uh, I have an appreciation for your mom. That's, uh, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, the, I know we're kind of coming up on time and I want to be respectful of the rest of your day. 
Um, there's a question I ask all my guests, and I, I'm excited to ask you. If you could meet anyone in the world, who would it be and why? Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, man. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. Right now, um, I think my... My uh, one another thing that I'm doing right now is kind of recapturing my love of art and art history and um, my uh, appreciation for um, art has gone since that's another thing that has kind of driven me is that creativity, but specifically art history. I did it in college and all that kind of thing. And so right now, my. Um, I'm thinking about going back to school and getting my master's in art history and all of that. And so right now I'm kind of collecting people that I find are incredible uh, creatives, but are able to weave that into like meeting the needs of clients or whomever. And one particular person I'm in love with, and she doesn't know this, but her name's Paula Shear. And um, she is seen as, the godmother of typography and branding and design. And so if you've seen, um, I'm trying to think, like the Citibank logo, or you've seen some of the classic 1960s and 70s album art, um, or gosh. What's an example the, of an album she did? Um, oh, oh, goodness. What is the, you mind if I get on my phone real quick? To, to I don't get mind the name at all. Of, I, I love um, typography. I'm, a, I'm not a... I'm not as not, like knowledgeable. I can, although I could point out fonts and be like, "Hey, the font that they used on my espresso machine is the same font they're using on the Rivia," and like, they, and I like both of those products. They must really get me. Like, I'm probably their target demo. So the Boston logo, um, Boston. Logo, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's I know that. Responsible for that, but she did so many different ones. And then on top of that, um she does amazing work in New York. So the, um, a lot of the theaters there have her do the, the, um, branding for their plays and for their musicals. The musical stomp was one of her, um, no brainchilds, that whole look. We did that and in my I elementary would... school. Oh, we really? Called it, uh, school, yeah. We called it school out loud and I played the drums and I still remember the beat because like it was like we gave words to it and it was cheese yeah. and crackers tastes very <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I love this. So, so she's the person that, you know, and some people say she really when it comes to New York theater, she's the person who created what New York theater is thought of when people wow. imagine like that energy and that ability to make it feel like the pictures are actually moving. And Stomp was one of her one of her pieces that kind of brought that into, into uh, the New York, I guess, zeitgeist, it would be the best way to put it. And so I would love to just sit with her and talk about how she does the thing that she does. And I don't even know if she'd be able to answer the question, but um, I would just, or just follow her, just shadow her, hold her phone for her for the day. And she's an artist as well. She has her own um, shows and exhibitions and stuff like that. So when I think about my career from now, moving forward and kind of how I'm trying to pivot, what she is doing is kind of like, the what I'm holding up as like the vision and I'm of course going to do my version of it but I just would love to know 
how she came to where she is. And I don't know, sometimes when you're in a tunnel, you need some light at the end. And so of the person who did the thing. And so I, I would love to meet her and talk to her and fangirl over her for an entire day. So <laughs> that's beautiful. I love it. I, so one of the reasons I asked this question, and I don't know if I've even ever shared it on the show is that I'm hoping the show gets to be big enough one day where um, I can help connect my guests to the people they'd like to meet. And at minimum, I'm really grateful to put this energy into the world. Um, and at some point, hopefully I can start to make these connections. Like I, I do a lot of connecting in life with people I do know. Um, but I'm hoping this is like the next iteration of me being the part of the connective tissue of the world. Oh my gosh. I would, I, I, I wouldn't even know what to do. I would have a second of just like, I love your work, you know, <laughs> and then we'd be able to talk to her. You know, there's, it would there's very few people that I feel like I'd fangirl over um, and be that way. But there's sometimes there's people where it's just like knowing I was in their presence and their energy is enough. Like actually the uh, hoodie I'm wearing right now is uh, beast mode. It's uh, Marshawn Lynch's uh, clothing line. And I was in Oakland maybe like seven years ago and I was in his store and I saw him and it was like Tuesday morning. And I just kind of said, Hey, and he said, Hey, and that was it. Cause like, if you know his ethos, he doesn't want to talk to reporters. He doesn't want people bothering him. He just wants to live his life, do his job. And so, but now I have that story forever. It's like I was in his orbit and that was good enough. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's funny. So this has been such a great time. Uh, Charisse, is there anything that you want the audience to take away or to take action about, or what, what kind of last parting words do you have? Um, I would say, you know, right now I feel like 2024 is like putting on the gas and, and everyone that I know there's visions and thoughts and emotions and feelings and, um, brainstormings that they have had in their past or been thinking about for years. And then for some reason, when we crossed into 2024, things are happening and things are moving forward. So I would say, Start, if you haven't already, start thinking about the things that you want to see happen in your life and pour into those. Because I really see 2024 as a, a year of expansion. And um, I'm putting myself in the mindset of I'm going to focus my energies on the things that I want to see expand in my life and less time on the things that I want to see make it smaller. So all good stuff. All, be, all amazing stuff, all things that'll be for good for other people as well as myself. So it, this is the year to do the thing, do it, whatever it is. Like my kids would say, just try, you know, <laughs> and just try and do it. Yeah. If it breaks, that's cool. Just try and go do it. Uh, you yeah. heard it here from Sharice Johnson. Um, Sharice, I've really enjoyed having you here. Um, I'm going to include links to Div Inc. as well as to the other organizations that you're starting. So it'll be in the resources. This is truly a pleasure, though. Thank you for stopping by. And to the audience, much love. I've enjoyed having you here today. Thank you so much. And thanks for watching. I appreciate it. <laughs>